Well, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14. We'll be in Hebrews 4, 14 through 5, 10 tonight. If you uh, are considering going overseas perhaps this next summer, we'd love to have you consider one of the trips with Grace. As you guys saw in the video earlier, we have three partnerships, one to Greece, one to East Asia, and then one to... If you are interested at all, there were some lunches earlier today, but you can also get information on the website. Uh, You can email me at the church, Matt Morton or Jamie Bryant. Either one of us can give you info, but those are five to six week trips, first half of the summer. Uh, We would love to have you all consider that and see if the Lord may uh, have you participate in what he's doing around the world this next summer. So Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for what it has to teach us about you and about your son, Jesus Christ. And as we sing, we pray that our hearts tonight would lift you up And proclaim that we're going to praise the one risen Son of God. Father, I know that many of us in here this evening are probably feeling tired, perhaps overwhelmed. I just pray that for this time you would remove those distractions. Give us energy to focus and to think about your word. Give me clarity as I talk. Let my words be those that you want me to say, Father. And I pray for each of us in here, open up our minds that we would understand Remove any barriers to understanding. Uh, Father, move in our hearts that we would believe you and then empower our bodies through your spirit to obey. We praise you and thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, do we have any engineering majors in here? few? Okay, good. Uh, I was an engineering major in college also. uh, And I have to admit, I was a mediocre 
engineering major at best. My grades in engineering typically hovered kind of right around that BC boundary. And so I was always shooting for the B, but in danger of getting the C. And so for that reason, if I got a test back and I discovered that the professor had made an error in the grading, I was very concerned to make sure that I got all of the points that I felt were coming to me because they were critical in pushing me right over that B boundary. And so uh, if there was an error, I wanted it fixed, but the problem I had was that I was often intimidated or afraid to go talk to the professor about it for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, because my grades were a bit low, I was afraid the prof wouldn't believe me when I went in, uh, that he would say, well, I think I know more than you. That's not a mistake on my part. It must be a mistake on your part because you've made several other mistakes on your part throughout this test. Uh, the other reason that I was afraid to talk to him was uh, I was a little bit worried that he would say, I don't understand why you care to argue when you didn't care to study. And so uh, I was a little bit worried about getting that reaction. And so what I would do is I would enlist my roommate. Uh, my roommate had a 4-0 in engineering. And so uh, if anybody cared more about a few points than I did, it was him. And so I would show him the paper. I'd say, is this a mistake? He'd say, yeah. And I'd seen this guy go and appeal his case several times with different professors. If he went in and said, you know, I really would like to not take the final this year because everybody knows I'm going to ace it, the prof would go, great, you know, sit out from it, whatever, we'll give you the A. If I did it, the prof would say, not a chance, right? So I knew that he had some sway that I didn't have. So we would send him in and invariably, time and time again, he would argue our case on behalf of the class or behalf of the group and we'd get our points back. He was our mediator between us and the prof. He was the go-between. And there are a lot of situations in your life that maybe you need a go-between for you and another party, somebody to mediate a relationship. For example, maybe when you were a kid, you had a few siblings and there was maybe one sibling that you thought, if we send him or her in there, he's got a better track record than I do with my parents, right? So you'd send them in and say, all right, go win us an extra hour before bedtime. Come back with the extra hour, right? And you knew they had a better shot. Some of you guys, maybe when you were in junior high, If you were interested in a girl, you knew it would be uh, social suicide to tell her that yourself. So uh, you would send a friend, right? With a note maybe, or have a friend call. I actually can remember being in about fifth grade and I had a friend call a girl that I was interested in on my behalf to tell her. Now, it didn't work out for me at all, actually. Instead of reciprocating, she stopped talking to me, but that's neither here nor there. My point is this, that uh, there are situations in life where you need a mediator. And as we look at the scripture, one of the consistent themes we see throughout the Bible is that you and I need a go-between between us and God. We need somebody to mediate. And the reason is because we are sinful and God is holy. God is perfect. God is higher than we are. God never makes a mistake and his holiness cannot countenance, cannot look upon our sinfulness. And so if you and I approach him in our sinful state, the result is death. And so we need mediators. And if you look at the Old Testament, beginning in Exodus 20, when God gives the law to his people, he tells Moses, he says, Moses, I'm going to come down from the mountain and I'm going to talk to the people and I'm going to tell them the law. So tell the people, get ready, wash yourself up, make sure you're clean and I'm going to come down and talk. And so God begins to come down and the people say what to Moses? They say, Moses, no, don't let God come down because uh, we're going to die if he comes down and talks directly to us. 
we're going to do something or say something that we shouldn't, and we're going to die. So Moses, why don't you go up, you talk to him, and just come down and tell us what he said. And God's response is, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. That's probably wise. So Moses goes up, he gets the law, and he brings it back down. As you walk through the rest of the Old Testament, while the people are in the wilderness with the tabernacle, while they are in the promised land with the temple, they have mediators, they have prophets, and they also have priests that mediate between them and God. And the priest's job in particular was to deal with this problem of sin on an ongoing basis. So a priest would remain ceremonially clean at all times. There were certain things they couldn't do. They couldn't touch a dead person, for example. There were special regulations about who they could marry, and they kept themselves clean so that they would always be ready to mediate between God and the people to deal with this problem of sin. And the message you get as you read the Old Testament is that because of our sinfulness, I can't just walk into the presence of God. I need a mediator. Now, as we get into the New Testament and we see the coming of Jesus, God's Messiah, and particularly here in the book of Hebrews, what the author of Hebrews is going to argue is that Jesus is taking the place now of these Old Testament mediators. And, and in fact, in the first few chapters of the book, he's argued Jesus is better than Moses. He's a better revealer of God's will than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's a better mediator of God's message And here he's going to say he's a better priest. He is a better mediator in this area of sin than were the Old Testament priests. Jesus supersedes the system of mediation given in the law. And the temptation these people were facing was to run back to Judaism and begin to engage in sacrifices again, begin to focus on Moses and the law and the priests and to leave Jesus because they're under persecution. And so the author of Hebrews is encouraging them, hold fast this confession because Jesus is better. Jesus is really the only way now to know God. He's the only way to deal with your sin, to have your sin forgiven. And so the author of Hebrews says, by all means, do not go back to that old system, but pursue Jesus. And as you and I sit here this evening, uh, my guess is that there are none of you in here probably that are weighing whether or not to go back to Judaism. I don't see that anybody has brought their goats or their lambs this evening to sacrifice, right? So as we read a passage like this, the hard part is, what in the world does this kind of a passage have to do with us? And I think there's a couple of things that it could possibly have to do with us. One is, there may be a few of you in here that you're weighing all different forms of spirituality. You're trying to decide, is Jesus really the best way Or is there some other way to get to God? Can I get to God by just being a nice guy or girl? Can I get to God maybe through some other prophet that I've heard about, whether it's Mohammed or Buddha or some form of the occult? And so you're weighing these different forms of spirituality and your temptation is instead of pursuing Jesus to pursue that, right? And here in this passage, we're going to see an exhortation that Jesus is the only path to know God exclusively. For others of you, you may have accepted that. You say, I know Jesus is the only way. I'm not tempted to go into any other form of spirituality. But what you're facing as a believer in Jesus Christ is that you may have a hard time really approaching Jesus to deal with this issue of sin in your life. And as we look at Hebrews, he's going to say, look, Jesus is the only way to deal with sin, not only for eternal life, but on an ongoing basis to have fellowship with God and have a walk with God. And my guess is that there are some of you in here this evening that you are pulling back and are distant from God because there is some sin struggle that you have for which you feel ashamed and guilty and distant from God and you don't want to approach him. Maybe you believe on some level that 
God can't forgive you. Or maybe you just believe on some level that, uh, you know, I've done it so many times, I don't want to go to God again because I know it's going to hurt and there's going to be shame and guilt. Or maybe you just don't want to let that sin go. And so you find your spiritual life dwindling away. And here in Hebrews 4 and 5, our author is going to say, no, you push closer to Jesus, even if it hurts at first, to find freedom and forgiveness of sin. He's the only way to know God. He is the best mediator. All right, so we're going to talk through that. But where we need to start is this issue of the high priest in particular. What is a high priest? Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. All right, so the high priest in the Old Testament was essentially the chief of the priests. And in the context of Hebrews, what the author has in mind is one particular role that the high priest did. And that was this. All priests made sacrifices. All right, day to day, every priest would make sacrifices for individual sins. But the high priest alone had the privilege of walking into what was called the most holy place or the holy of holies, where God's presence was said to uniquely dwell. And in that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen, you know, Indiana Jones or whatever, you know basically what it looks like. It looked a little better probably than that in real life, right? And there weren't face-melting demons that came out when you opened it or whatever. But the Ark of the Covenant... Was, was a box that, that God had had the Israelites build that represented his presence. And so there were artifacts inside that represented God's presence. And there were two cherubim that would stretch their wings across the lid of this box. And that was called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go into, once a year, he'd go into the Holy of Holies. And it's actually said because God's presence was there, the high priest would tie a little rope around his ankle in case he did something wrong and he was struck dead, they could grab the rope and pull him back out. Only the high priest could go in there, and it was a very solemn occasion. And what he would do when he went in is he would first make sacrifice for his own sins. He would take a bull, and he would sacrifice it and sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat to atone for his sins. And then he would take two goats for the people. One of those goats he would sacrifice, and he would sprinkle that blood over the mercy seat to cover over the sins of the people before God for the next year. Then they'd take the second goat, and they'd walk outside, and the high priest would place his hands on the head of that second goat and confess the sins of the people and send the goat off into the wilderness, presumably to die. Often they would uh, traditionally take that goat, and they would actually walk it off of a cliff to make sure it didn't come back. Because it represented the guilt of the people walking away. So the high priest once a year would do this. And only the high priest would do it. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is the high priest served a critical role year to year to atone for the sins of the people. And so he stood in the gap. So the high priest was a mediator between God and men. That's what he did. Now we don't have priests in our cultural context. Maybe if you grew up Catholic, you had somebody you called a priest, but they were The the priest in the Catholic Church operates in a different way than the priests of the Old Testament. The priests of the Old Testament, particularly, they offered blood sacrifices to deal with sin. We don't have priests in the same way. We do, however, have 
uh, mediators between us and a judge and us and a ruler. For example, a lawyer would be a form of a mediator. If you go to court, you want a lawyer. We make a lot of fun of lawyers in our society. Uh, There's a thousand lawyer jokes. I ran into one this past week. It says, what do you have if, if three lawyers are buried up to their necks in cement? You guys know? Not enough cement, right? So there's all kinds of lawyer jokes. But if you go to court, you want a lawyer. You want someone who knows the law. You want someone who knows the judge who can mediate on your behalf to keep you from experiencing the wrath of the judge and the wrath of the court. And what the high priest did is he stood in that gap to keep the people from experiencing God's wrath. So he was a mediator between God and men. He was able to sympathize with humanity. Why? Because he also was a sinful person. High priest wasn't perfect. He knew if he violated God's standards of holiness somehow, if he violated the standards of the temple, then God could put him to death or he would be punished for his sin. He felt probably almost as much, if not more, than any other person, his own sinfulness. And that's why verses 2 and 3 say he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Before he went into God's presence, he had to deal with his own sins before God, before he could represent the people. And you want a priest who can sympathize because that priest can most effectively represent you. You want somebody who understands where you're coming from. He also was appointed by God. In verse 4, he was chosen by God for the role. And traditionally and always really in the Old Testament temple context, the high priest was a Levite, a descendant particularly of Aaron, Moses' brother. And you had to be a direct descendant of Aaron, the firstborn of that family, in order to take on this role of high priest. Nobody just decided one day they're going to be high priest. God chose them. So he represented God and he represented man. That's what a high priest did. And he stood in the gap as a mediator. Now, what our author is going to say here is that Jesus is the best high priest. See, the problem with the Old Testament high priest was year after year after year, he kept having to make sacrifices. And we'll get into that later in Hebrews. But there was never a time in which he could say, the sacrifices are done, I'm going to take a rest. He kept having to do it because the people kept sinning and the priests kept sinning. And nobody could make any kind of a once-for-all sacrifice. And so he was insufficient. He also was finite and sinful himself. And so the author of Hebrews is going to argue Jesus is the best high priest for a few reasons. Why is Jesus the best one? All right, first of all, Jesus is the best one because God uniquely appointed him in a way that he did not appoint the Aaronic priests. All right, look at verses 5 and 6 real quick. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Jesus didn't make himself the high priest. God made him the high priest. And he says, Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Right now, who the heck is Melchizedek, right? If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see this guy Melchizedek, and we'll talk about him later as well. Genesis 14, after Abraham finishes a battle, this guy Melchizedek shows up and he blesses Abraham and he offers up some kind of sacrifice on Abraham's behalf and it says he's a priest of the Most High God. He preceded Aaron. He was a priest that had been chosen by God with seemingly no hereditary lineage of priesthood. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went after that. He comes in, he blesses Abraham, he disappears. The author of Hebrews is going to use that to say Jesus has a special priesthood. One that's not based on heredity, 
One that's not just based on the credentials of man, but one that is based on God uniquely choosing him. Is anybody in here planning to go to medical school later on down the road? A few of you guys? All right. Uh, you're going to go to school for a long, long, long time. Uh, you, will, uh, you will be in school for years and years and years. And when you get out, you'll be a doctor. And you'll also need a number of doctors because you'll be old. And uh, So you will be in school for a long time. You're going to work very hard to achieve that position though, right? You'll go to a medical school. You'll intern. You'll do a residency. And then they'll present you with a certificate. And you will be able to practice medicine. Now, if you go through all of that and then you were to come in here and uh, see me stand up and I put on some scrubs and a stethoscope and I just proclaim myself a doctor, that might bother you, right? And I grab a scalpel and I say, free surgeries tonight, right? (laughs) That would bug you a little bit, right? Just putting on scrubs and a stethoscope doesn't make me a doctor. I can't appoint myself to that position. I have to be designated a doctor by a medical school, by the state, right? I have to have the credentials, It's the same thing with high priest. You can't just walk into the temple and begin killing goats and say, I'm the high priest. God had to appoint you. And what the author here is saying is in a special way, God chose Jesus. And what that means is that Jesus can perfectly represent God. And the author gives us a hint of why here in verse five, because he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He goes back to that concept from Psalm two, that Jesus is the only son of God the perfect son of God without sin and therefore able to perfectly represent God in a way that a human high priest could never do because he was flawed and sinful. So Jesus is chosen to be a new kind of priest. Not only that, but Jesus fully sympathizes with us. And I'm going to argue even in a way that the human high priest, the earthly high priest could not. Look at verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5. All right, and what the author is saying here is Jesus can fully sympathize with us. So he can represent God and he can represent us because he was fully human as well as fully God. And he understands our temptations in every way because he was tempted in every way. And he understands our suffering. Jesus suffered. And so to an audience of people who are struggling, uh, deciding whether to stick with Jesus or not, this is very significant because they're undergoing persecution. Some of them are losing their jobs and their homes and their prestige. And in the midst of that, our author here says, no, stick with Jesus because he gets you. He knows what you're going through. He understands the pressure that you're facing. And yet he overcame it. And so you can come to him for help and you can come to him for grace. When you're going through a difficult time, you're struggling with a sin or you're suffering, you want somebody who sympathizes. If you finish a test and you get out of the test and you come out and you begin to commiserate with your fellow students, as you do often, you say, you know, I didn't really understand uh, question eight or one through seven, right? Or 
9 through 11 or whatever it is. And you go, I didn't get that test. I didn't understand. And you sit down with your friends. You want somebody who says, yeah, I get that too. You don't want somebody who goes, well, I got it. Right. Maybe you're just kind of slow, right? Uh, that doesn't help you. That doesn't, that doesn't help you in the least. You want somebody who at least understands the difficulty of it, who sympathizes with you. You don't necessarily want somebody who failed it to give you counsel on it, but you at least want someone who understands the difficulty and the challenges. I've told some of y'all this before, but when my third child, our son, was born in January, he was, for the first week of his life, he was in the intensive care unit, the neonatal unit at the hospital. And uh, a number of people were very encouraging and very helpful, but one of the most encouraging messages that I received during that time was from a guy who wrote, and he, he couldn't be there. He was in another city at the time, and he said, I'm really sorry I can't be there. He said, I remember when my daughter was here in the NICU, and I remember the, the smells and the feelings of confusion and the frustration that you can't hold them and all of these things, and went on to talk about this experience. And just reading that email, I felt this camaraderie with him of, oh, somebody gets it. And it encouraged me, and I felt strengthened. And what our author says is Jesus is the best priest because, yes, he perfectly represents God, but he also perfectly represents you and me. And our temptation here is to think, well, Jesus doesn't really get temptation towards sin because he never sinned. And the reality is just the opposite is true because Jesus experienced the full brunt of temptation in a way that you and I never will. Why? Because you and I experience a little bit of temptation and then we give in to it. Jesus experienced all that temptation and sin could throw at him from the devil and from this world, and yet he resisted it. And so when you say, I'm struggling with sin, he knows what that feels like, even more than you do. Go back at some point and read through Matthew 4 and see the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness when Satan comes and tempts him with all of these areas in which Jesus would have been tempted to set aside his mission to glorify God and instead pursue power and pride and wealth. At a time when he was hungry and thirsty, probably a bit sad and lonely, he experiences this temptation, yet he resisted and overcame, so he understands. And the reason this is significant, like we said at the beginning, is because I know that there are some of us in here, you've got a struggle with sin that's ongoing, And you think, I I don't want to take that to Jesus for whatever reason. Maybe you don't even consciously think that, but you find yourself just distant from him. So day after day, the sin continues to eat you alive and you feel guilt and shame and fear about going to God for a number of reasons. Perhaps you see him as constantly upset and disappointed and you think that the way to avoid that is to withdraw. When in reality, the way to deal with your relationship with God is to draw closer even though it might initially hurt. It may be that you say, if I draw closer and I confess this sin, I know that uh, confessing that sin is going to result in my needing to take steps to draw closer to God again, and I don't want to do that. And it's going to be hard and painful. And so you pull back. And what Hebrews 4 here says is, no, you draw closer with confidence to approach the throne of grace where you will receive what? Mercy and grace to help you. So whatever you're tempted with, you go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, help me. And when you sin, you go to him and you say, Jesus, forgive me. 
and you find that healing and forgiveness that you're not finding right now. And for some of us, you know, you may feel like your spiritual life, it's just dwindled to nothing. Because you're going and going and going instead of approaching the throne of grace where the high priest will deal with our sin before God. When I was uh, early on in college, I developed some kind of a tumor in my foot, on the sole of my foot. And uh, it was benign, but it still hurt a lot. And uh, I had to work at a job where I had to wear dress shoes and walk around. I was on my feet a lot. And so throughout the day, this foot was just killing me. And uh, so I finally made an appointment with a doctor. He looked at it and he said, yeah, it's going to have to uh, have surgery. We're going to have to cut this thing out of your foot. And uh, the surgery scared me, just to be frank. I don't like lying down and having people cut me. And uh, I don't know if anybody, <laughs> if anybody does. And so uh, I was a little bit nervous about it. And yet I realized the way I'm living right now isn't working for me because I come home at the end of a long day and my feet are just killing me. And I've got to sit down for an hour before I can even do anything. And so I made this appointment and I went in for the surgery and he, he did, you know, all these things. And yeah, it hurt. And I had to have pain medication for a while and I was off my feet, but then it healed. And now I can wear shoes. I can walk. And so despite my fear of going in there, all of a sudden this surgery, this cutting, which was painful, resulted in a transformation that made things a whole lot better, brought a quality of life I didn't previously have. And that's where some of you are in your relationship with God. You need to approach Jesus Christ and allow him perhaps to do the difficult work of dealing with your sin before God. And that may hurt. It may cut. But on the other side of that, there is an abundance and a quality of life that you aren't experiencing right now. And, and the author here goes on to say this, because Jesus is perfectly the best high priest, he, he eternally saves us. He eternally saves us. He is capable of dealing with our sin in a once-for-all way because he is infinite, he is God, and he is man, and he became the sacrifice. So now he deals with our sin in a once-for-all way, in a way that the Old Testament high priest never could. Because Jesus died on behalf of our sin. Remember, if you approach God apart from a mediator, God is holy, you're sinful, what happens? You die. So what Jesus does is he steps in the place of us and he takes that death that we deserved. And then he beats it by rising again. So now he becomes the pathway by which we can approach God and he provides eternal life. And it may be for some of you, you've never believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And so for you, the message for you tonight is this. You cannot deal with sin. You cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot remove the guilt and shame that you may feel apart from believing in Jesus Christ alone. For those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, I want to emphasize here that receiving eternal life, knowing that you have eternal life, is a free gift only by believing in Jesus Christ. However, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, what God wants for us is much more than just having this assurance that one day we'll be in heaven and then between here and now, we're distant and apart from him and separated. What he wants is that we have an ongoing relationship of fellowship and love with with our God. And we're able to be free to fulfill his purposes for our life because we know him and we walk with him closely. And so for those who have trusted Christ, the message for you tonight is probably this, that we need to, in an ongoing way, come before Jesus and ask for help 
in our time of temptation and ask for forgiveness in our time of sin. And Jesus is faithful, as 1 John 1, 9 says, faithful and just to forgive us and to restore that fellowship and that ongoing relationship we have with God because he is the perfect high priest. So the message is don't hide from him anymore. You may be at a place where you need to talk to somebody else, have somebody else pray for you, but even before that, you may be in a place where you need to just, you and God, get before Jesus. You say, Jesus, I need you to help me deal with this issue. A few years ago, I was preaching on a passage one summer from the Psalms. I think, Well, I think it was from the Psalms, and I was talking on the subject of integrity. And I began to look at the life of David and see, uh, at least at most of his life, the integrity that he had. And as I was reading this, the Lord began to convict me about something that I had done uh, several years before that had been dishonest and had lacked integrity. And I kind of pushed it to the back of my mind. And I had done that for a long time. And yet as I'm wrestling with this text, the Spirit keeps pounding me with this thing. And I keep trying to ignore it and push it back. And the reason was because I was afraid to confess it to the Lord because I knew if I came and I confessed it truthfully and sincerely, then there were also going to be other steps that I needed to take in good conscience. One of which was approach the person that I had cheated and tell them. And so I continued to push it back until the Spirit finally kind of broke through my barrier. And I stopped my study and I confessed it to the Lord and then I wrote a letter to the person, put it in the mail, and yeah, I was embarrassed, and yes, it was difficult, and yet all of a sudden, in that moment, once I had done that, there was this freedom, and this liberation, and this sense of closeness with God that I don't think I'd been experiencing for several months, if not more, because I'd been hanging on to this thing. Some of you are in that same kind of a situation hanging on to stuff that you need to come before Jesus and ask for forgiveness and ask for help and begin to renew your fellowship with him. Some of you, you're just tempted right now to just pull away. So the question for us this evening, will you trust Jesus with your sins as well as with your suffering? Whatever it is you're going through, you have a perfect high priest who stands between you and God, a mediator, who deals with this issue of sin, who understands you but also represents God and can pave the way for a relationship with God that you may not be experiencing right now. As we close, I want us just to close our eyes for a minute. We're going to pray here. But before I close us in prayer, I want to take just a minute and um, have each of us go before the Lord. And I want you to just honestly ask yourself and ask the Lord, Lord, is there something that's keeping me from knowing you as well as you want me to? Is there something that's keeping me from serving you as faithfully as you want me to? Is there some sin, some bitterness, some struggle that's pulling me away? And if so, I just want you to bring it to Jesus and ask him to help you, ask him to forgive you, whatever it is. Just bring it to Jesus. Then in a moment when I finish, there's going to be a couple people up here that are willing to pray with you, that are willing to talk with you. I'll be up here as well if there are things you need to deal with. But let's just take a moment and bring those things before the Lord. Father, we're grateful for your word, how it convicts us, pierces us to our hearts. 
Father, we pray that your spirit would move in our minds and our hearts, that we wouldn't lie to ourselves and lie to you. That we would be straightforward and honest about the fact that we need you and your forgiveness and your help. Lord, I pray that you would make this a group of men and women who are able to faithfully walk with you on a day-to-day basis so that the world might see the glory of Jesus Christ shining through our lives. Father, we just pray, make us faithful and walk with us as we go out this evening. Lord, to pursue you as closely as you want us to. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great week.